This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Mario Livio. You can download the MP3 of our produced show with him at onbeing.org. Dr. Livio? Yes. Hi, it's Krista Tippett. Sure, hi. Hi, good to hear your voice. Good to hear you. <laughs> uh, I have a question, by the way, yes, for yes, you. Yes, uh, Just before we start, uh, I know that, uh, you know, I was told that the interview is something like an hour and a half. Right, but yeah, we'll go or, between 60 and 90 minutes, if that's all right. Yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, how long will the actual program be? It's an hour. Okay. Uh-huh. No, uh, the only reason I ask this is I, I wanted to know whether I can, you know, sometimes give uh, answers which are a little bit on the lengthy side, or I should, you know, no, you, do, you try to yes to do very short answers. No, that's actually why we do a real uh, a, a long conversation so that we can have a real conversation, and we also put the unedited interview out so people can hear the lengthy answers if they want to, and some people do. So, um, okay. yeah, and, it, and, and because it's a real conversation, it, it, it you know, may or may not be completely linear. If there's something that you want to come back of to course, or say better, course. we can do that. So that's great. Okay, I think, we, do you have any other questions of me, any questions about the show? Or? No, I, I know a little bit about your show, and I also have, um, I must say, I've not read it cover to cover, but I have read parts of your book. Oh, good, okay. So you know a little bit of what we do. <laughs> Um, okay. Well, uh, I'd like to start um, where, where I always start, which is I, I, I like to get a sense, um, whether someone is religious or not, or however they might be religious, of whether there was a spiritual or religious, religious background to their childhood. No, I know that certainly your Jewish identity was important in your childhood, but, but uh, I guess the question still stands of what, was there a religious um, sensibility in your family? Or? Um, well, when I was born, this was in Romania, and um, Jews were not typically treated particularly well in yeah. Romania. Yeah. So um, while I would not say that uh, my grandparents parent, uh, uh, wanted to hide the fact that they were Jews, uh, they certainly did not advertise it uh, every day. I would put it that way. Uh, but my grandfather was a person who used to go to synagogue, uh, at least uh, sometimes, you know, and so on. Hmm. Could he go to synagogue? I guess this was before. This was yeah, he, pre-war. He, 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 he could go to, to the synagogue, yes. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, this is before my time. Right. Uh, I, I, I don't, well, first of all, I left Romania when I was five. Yeah. So I have very few memories from that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think that I ever went to synagogue in right. Romania. Right. But from the fact that I know that he continued to go to synagogue after we immigrated to Israel, I, you know, I imagine that he also did that uh, while he could, right. you know, while in Romania. And, and then I'm wondering if, uh, if mathematics and science, if this was something that you always had an inclination towards? Yeah, I think the answer is yes. Uh, In in particular, I would say mathematics and theoretical ideas because, uh, you know, there are some people who are very experimentally inclined 
Uh, you know, these are people who like to build things, you know, right. and do things of that nature. Uh, I was never of that type. I mean, I, uh, I have absolutely no talents in building anything. <laughs> Um, so, uh, but I, yeah, I was inclined towards mathematics and sort of theoretical thinking, you know, asking questions and so on, but more in a theoretical sense. Okay. I, I read somewhere, I think this is an interview you gave in Israel that, that described this pretty dramatic journey you had, um, because of that period in which you were born, uh, from Romania to Israel, you spent time in a transit camp, and they said you had an Oliver Twi- one Oliver Twist-like year. And in that interview, you had said that that even at a very young age, you found solace in mathematics. Is that right? I think. Well, first of all, it is certainly true that I had an Oliver Twist-type <laughs> two years. I okay. would say, <laughs> um, in that. Um, you know, I lived in, in some sort of a place where there were all kinds of children who were arriving with immigrants and, you know, they couldn't live with their parents because the places were too small and so on and so forth. So they, so there was a whole bunch of a few tens of kids in an Oliver Twist type institution. Hmm. Um, so uh, that I do remember. Now, uh, to tell you whether or not at that time I found solace in mathematics, uh, well, I was very young. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. we're talking between the ages of um, five and uh, seven, let's say. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, I was always I always kind of liked mathematics, but, you know, it's not as if you do a lot of mathematics at age five. <laughs> I mean, some people did. I mean... Uh, <laughs> But I think they were more talented than than I was. Okay. Um, did did mathematics then be, did it become more and more important to you as you grew older? When when did it become really I, I a part of your that, passion? Uh, well, you know, in school you start to study mathematics and science and and so on a little bit, and uh, and once I uh, became a little bit more serious about studying, which did take a while. Um, yeah, I was interested more in in these areas, but um, again, maybe I should I should say this. I mean, you know, there are uh, these kids that you know do only mathematics, you know, morning mm. to evening or something like this. And I wasn't like that at all. I mean, uh, I mean, I I liked reading. Um, you know, I probably did more reading than I did any mathematics. Um, certainly at the early. Uh, ages in school, I mean, in, in the first classes and so on. I was more known as a, somebody who reads all the time than somebody who does mathematics okay. all the time. All right. And, you know, when I look at a description of the work you do now, um, it's just uh, such a fascinating list. Um, I've seen that you have special interest in the accretion of mass by black holes, neuron stars, white dwarfs, supernovas, dark energy, intelligent life in the universe. I mean, it's a really captivating list. And um, is is mathematics implicated in all of those um, endeavors? I mean, I think that's something that those of us on the outside struggle to um, to grasp. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there is. Uh there is very little uh, science done today in, in things like the physical sciences. You know, I mean, physics, uh, uh, in well, some parts of engineering, of course, chemistry and so on. 
um, that does not involve mathematics. In fact, it is virtually impossible, I think, today to even think of a theory in physics, uh, you know, that does not involve mathematics. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, all the areas that you mentioned are all within my, uh, you know, my general area of theoretical astrophysics and uh, Absolutely, the language there is the language of mathematics. Right. Um, and, you know, this, this question that is the, the title of your book, um, it, your latest book, Is God a Mathematician? I, I, I want to honor the fact that the, the point you make that the question itself is what's most fascinating to you. And, um, and I'd like to, um, to dwell on that, you know, what is interesting, why this, what does this question mean to you, um, and, you know, how, how do you find it arising? Kind of take us there. So the question, you know, was phrased after um, um, there was a physicist called James Jeans uh, in the last century, and uh, he once um, used phrases such as, you know, God is a mathematician and so on, and I and I phrased the question, you know, based on, on, on his uh, words, more or less. And the meaning of the question really is, um, how come that mathematics is as powerful as it is, uh, you know, in explaining, you know, almost everything in the universe? Um, that's one part of the question. And the second part, uh, which is equally intriguing, is, uh, is mathematics... Uh, Discovered, namely, you know, mathematics is out there, and we are just discovering the truths of mathematics. Right. Or is it an invention of the human mind, and it really has no existence outside the human mind? Mm -hmm. uh, so these are the two main questions that I try to deal with in this book. So let let's talk first of all, all about just the. Uh, tease out the idea of the power of mathematics. I mean, you and other scientists use words um, to describe mathematics that are also words that are used to describe the divine, right? Omnipresence <laughs> and omnipotence. Um, wh yes. What does that mean for you when you hear that? What, what does that kind of language uh, connote? Well, it, it means, you know, roughly what I said before, namely... Suppose I want to describe, you know, all the basic forces of nature or I want to describe all the basic subatomic particles of nature and so on. Or I want to describe what does the universe at large do. Uh, it turns out that uh, the way, only way, in fact, that we know how to describe these things is using mathematics. And mathematics turns out to be, you know, almost too powerful, you know, uh, in describing all of these things, I'll give you a very, very simple example. Okay. I mean, um, you know, Sir Isaac Newton, you know, who you know, formulated the law of gravity and so on. So at his time, there were some astronomical observations that were done by uh, Johannes Kepler and others and so on. And the observations at the time uh, were not particularly accurate. I mean, they were accurate for their time, but, you know, they... They were accurate to within about 4% or so, you know, the, the accuracy of the observations. Yet from these somewhat scanty observations, Isaac Newton managed to distill a mathematical law that describes gravity. And that law, already by the 1950s, was shown to be accurate to better than one part in a million. Mm-hmm. So here you have a situation where, you know, he takes observations that are really not so accurate 
he formulates a mathematical theory of, you know, what this force of gravity should behave like. And the mathematical theory turns out to be even more accurate than the observations on which it was based. (laughs) You know, how come? I mean, what is it that gives mathematics such powers? And... And that kind of uh, 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 that points. I mean, it's, it's it's interesting in many ways. It 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 points at a, a sense that that I've had in conversations with other scientists across the years. That it, uh, this idea that 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 mathematics uh, has a reality and truth about it that may even be greater than the reality and truth of human perception. Um, or the physical world that it is measuring or describing. Right. And, and, and I actually know a number of mathematicians and theoretical physicists who, who speak exactly in the terms that you just described, that, uh, you know, they have a reality, mathematical concepts have a reality about them, which is in some sense even stronger than the physical reality that we observe. There are people who who absolutely speak in those terms. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is another aspect of it which people found always fascinating and I find fascinating, which is, you know, mathematicians, really pure mathematicians, they like to do things with absolutely no application whatsoever in mind. You know, they develop all kinds of mathematical theories and they don't think that this will ever have any application. Sometimes they are even proud Mm. of the fact that it has no applications. Uh, And yet, you know, decades or sometimes centuries later, it is found that those mathematical theories provide precisely the explanations needed for some physical phenomena, you know, and so on. H- how is this possible? I mean, th- that's part of this question, right. you and, know, of is God a mathematician? And you, you give some examples of that um, in your writing. and I mean, give me one now, just four examples, something that only much so, later. So I'll, 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 I'll give you an example which is perhaps not so well known as some others. I mean... Uh, which is uh, the theory of knots. I'm talking like knots in a string, yes. you know, things like that. So so there is a mathematical theory of knots. Uh, and uh, what happened in the middle of the 19th century, uh, nobody knew what atoms were. And uh, somebody uh, suggested, uh, one physicist suggested that atoms were um, knotted tubes of ether. Ether was, you know, this mysterious medium that was supposed to permeate everything. And, um, okay, so uh, a mathematician named Peter Guthrie Tate uh, started creating a theory of knots. And by that I mean, you know, trying to determine mathematically which two knots are really different and which are the same, you know, and so on. And he worked on this for like 20 years. By the time he finished working on that, Uh, everybody forgot that theory of atoms, you know, and so on. So mathematicians just continued with the theory of knots for its own sake. I mean, they had absolutely no application in mind. Yet it turns out that today, you know, you you may have heard about string theory. (laughs) String theory is, you know, our current best attempt of a sort of theory of all the basic forces of nature. Well, guess what? I mean... These knots and their properties turn out to be very, very basic and very, very important for string theory. Hmm. So we're talking here, you know, I mean, more than a decade later, and suddenly this theory of knots uh, becomes very, very applicable to a variety of of, uh, fields. 
they are also, by the way, uh, very useful for studying the structure of the DNA, for example. Right, the knot theory. Um, Right. Visually, right. I can yeah. imagine that. Right. Because, you know, the DNA, it's these, you know, these double helix strands, yes. you know, which are can be knotted and so on. So it turns out that you can use this theory of knots, you know, to actually determine at what rate enzymes cut this DNA and so on and, and, and this. So, so all of a sudden, you know, even though the theory was developed with no application in mind, suddenly it becomes very, very applicable. It's interesting, too, that it was designed with this idea of ether, which then went away, right? That that was a building block of it, but that it proved right, to be so much right. more enduring than... Right. <laughs> but in, in some ways, there is something almost uh, amusing about this because, yes. you know, it was... Originally, it was developed to de- uh, try to explain atoms, which were at the time thought to be the most basic building blocks, you know, of, mm-hmm. of matter. Uh, and now we are using it... Uh, in string theory, which is actually the current theory trying to explain the most basic building blocks of matter. Right. And uh, as elusive in some ways as ether. <laughs> yeah, although they are different building blocks. Yes. Um, and and something else that intrigues me is that – so if we say that these mathematical theories and principles have some kind of truth that is – that is very real. I mean, it's even these truths are enduring also in a way that that many of our other truths are not, um, right? I mean, where is it? Somewhere in your in your writing, you've said that so, there's there's a word for a mathematical proof that is later corrected, and that is it was a mistake to begin with. But the, the That's things right. that work, right. they continue yes. to work. Th- that is correct. Uh, I mean, mathematics is very unusual in this way, in the sense that. You know, if I want to calculate today uh, the volume of a cylinder, you know, I still use a formula that was developed by the ancient Greeks. Um, So, you know, all those truths remain. Now, what is, however, true is that there are branches of mathematics uh, that get um, embedded into larger branches that, you know, that were once thought to be absolute truths, and then they okay. turn out to be not so absolute, you know, and mm-hmm. so on. So I, I have to say that until recently, um, I I was under the uh, false impression that most, that, that in general there was an assumption that, say, these basic mathematical truths are discovered rather than invented. Uh, I mean, I just, I thought that, you know, Einstein discovered <laughs> E equals MC squared that he didn't invent it. And then I was speaking not that long ago with two astronomers, George Coyne and a guy, Consomagno, who told me that there is this ongoing debate about whether mathematics is invented or discovered. And then I, I read your book and I find that, in fact, you've traced that across the centuries and that it's very much alive today. Um, so let, let's talk about that a little bit um, I mean, is that yeah. something that you're aware of as you as you that you've been aware of throughout your career, or is it something that you discovered more in this um, historical getting this historical perspective? Uh, I've been aware of it uh, throughout my entire career, but uh, you know, I didn't sort of get so deeply into the question, you know, before I decided to write this book. Uh, but I was always kind of intrigued a little bit by this. And indeed, it, it is this debate is uh, raging even today. I mean, mm-hmm. there are people 
who, you know, will absolutely, you know, uh, bet their house on the fact that mathematics is discovered. Uh, there are others that say that it's invented. Um, so let me give you a sense. I mean, the, the discovered business started with Plato. I mean, uh, so in ancient times. Yeah. And uh, but it continued with uh, very modern people, you know, like uh, Kurt Gödel or you know, and others, uh, mathematicians. And I, I actually know personally, you know, people who think that mathematics is fully discovered. Namely, the truths are out there, and uh, all we do is uh, discover them in the same way that astronomers discover new galaxies. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, mm-hmm. they were always there, but we just discover that they exist. Uh, there are others who will tell you, in particular, people who come from, um, you know, neuroscientists and the likes, uh, who will tell you that, no, there is no such thing. Um, it's all an invention of, of the human mind, really, that, you know, we invent all these things. And uh, it, it's all like a game. You know, we play a game, we invent the rules of the game, and we we just... Uh, Whenever we we want, we can change the rules and we change the game and and so on. It's right. a bit like playing chess. Right. Um, what I, you know, the conclusion I reached uh, in this book at the end, which some people are unhappy with because we always like things to be black or white. Yes. Uh, we don't like them so much. I mean, pe- people can even live with gray, uh, but they cannot live. So well with black and white, right? Both and, um, yeah. and uh, and and that's that's what the conclusion that I reach, namely, uh, you see, when you pose the question like this, so is mathematics invented or discovered? Uh, you immediately kind of give the impression that the answer has to be that it is either this or it's that, and it cannot be both. Mm-hmm. But I think that this is the wrong way of, of posing the question uh, because what I think happens is that mathematics is a very, very complex mixture of inventions and discoveries. So I, I can give you a, an example. Okay. So you may have heard about imaginary numbers. This is like the square root of minus one. Uh, you know, there is no number that if you square it, it gives minus one. Okay. Because when you square a number, you multiply the number by itself. Even if the number was negative, when you multiply it by itself, it becomes positive, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so there is no square root of minus one. Uh, yet mathematicians invented a new concept, which <laughs> they call an imaginary number, and they denote it by the letter I, Okay. Now, once they invented this concept, then they start to discover all kinds of relations that this concept has. And those are true discoveries. So what happens, just to put it very broadly, Hmm. I think that what we do is we invent the concepts, but then we discover the relations among these concepts. Now, I sense that the imaginary number maybe was a little abstract for you. <laughs> Correct it is. me it if, is. I'm, it is a, yes. if I'm wrong. Yes. Uh, so, so maybe, you know, I'll, I'll talk about something that's a little bit more concrete. So you may have heard of prime numbers. Yes. These are the numbers that are divisible only by themselves and by the number one, like, like 7, 11, right. 19, 
31, and so on. Okay? Mm-hmm. They, they, they don't divide into anything else other than in themselves and one. The ancient Greeks invented the concept of prime numbers. I mean, why do I say invented and they not discover them? Because, for example, it turns out that uh, Indian and Chinese mathematicians did not actually define this concept in, you know, in a way. And, and the, this concept does not play an important role in their mathematics. But once the ancient Greeks invented these uh, prime numbers... Then they started discovering all kinds of theorems about them. And those were discoveries. Those were true discoveries. They are not something that could be invented. Once you invented the concept, the discoveries are essentially forced upon you. Hmm. So that's the difference. So, and you know, like the the question, is God a mathematician? Um, the longer I, I, you think about this question of whether mathematics is invented or discovered, you find that e- just the act of asking the question itself is so rich, right? <laughs> I mean, it, um, it is, and yes. you and you and you end up with all these uh, puzzles or mysteries that that feel to me that they're verging on the philosophical and the theological as well, right? By, by implication, um, you know, this question that's raised in your work, so. So you can say that our minds give rise to mathematics, but then, then mathematics are found to explain the physical world. That's uh, right. Which is very we, a very mysterious thing to think about. Yeah, yeah, you, you're absolutely right. And uh, you know, my colleague Roger Penrose, whom yeah, I, I don't know if you have ever interviewed him. I haven't, but I um, know his work. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he's a, a very famous uh, uh, mathematical physicist. So, so he once said that. There are these three worlds and, and, and three mysteries. Mm-hmm. So the three worlds are one is uh, the physical world. You know, this is the world where we exist. There are chairs, tables, there are stars, there are galaxies, and so on. Uh, then uh, there is a second world, which is uh, the world of our consciousness, if you like, you know, our a mental world, the world where this is where we love, where we hate, you know, and so on. All our thoughts are there and so on. And then there is the third world, which is this world of mathematical forms. These are, this is the world where all of mathematics is there, you know, uh, the theorem of Pythagoras and so on and so forth, all these, these the imaginary numbers and all that. So these are the three worlds. And now come these three mysteries. One mystery is that somehow out of the physical world, our world of consciousness has emerged. That's one right, mystery. Right. A second mystery is that somehow our world of consciousness or mental world gained access to this world of mathematical forms, you know, that we were able to right. invent and discover all these mathematics. And third and maybe most amazing mystery is that we find that this world of mathematics provides the explanations for the physical world. <laughs> right. right. So it's that circle again. Right. Uh-huh. So, 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 so there are these three worlds and, and, and three mysteries, which, you know, of course, at the end of the day, they're all part of one universe, right? Uh, but, but it's an interesting way of, of, of posing the question. I, I was also intrigued by one of the arguments that you described that, and this would be people who s- insist that mathematics is invented rather dis- than discovered. One argument for that, and, and, and help me expl- understand this, is that Mathematics, in fact, have a generative character that they, 
you even use this language, some say that they give birth to other objects. In that sense, they're like living beings. Explain that to me. Yes. So, again, this comes mostly from neuroscientists, okay. uh, this type of thing. And, uh, you know, they would – maybe it's easier to, easiest to explain this by comparing mathematics to a language. So, we use language to describe everything, right? Mm. And our language, you know, it's hard to argue that our language uh, was discovered, yeah. You know, the fact that we have words for everything, you know, and so on. I mean, it's easier to grasp that these are inventions, right? It's not as if the words existed there and we discovered the words. We, we certainly invented them. Mm-hmm. And then we use these words to describe things and to generate new words and new th- explanations, you know, and so on. So... Uh, if you think of mathematics in a somewhat similar fashion, then you kind of tend to think that it is more like an invention than a discovery. Although, isn't there a difference because we know that as human beings, we're equipped with kind of a foundation for learning language. Uh, and clearly, we're equipped with some kind of foundation for learning mathematics as well. But um, why is the language of mathematics so much or why has it seems so much more universal than the way our spoken language uh, is is so diverse and, in fact, provincial by contrast. Uh, yeah, although, as I'm sure you know, I mean, there are people who actually, uh, you know, really study uh, languages from the point of view of, um, uh, you know, how languages develop and what are the structures, you know, people like Chomsky, you know, and others. Uh, will tell you that uh, there is more universal to languages than we tend to think. Yeah. I mean, you know, there is this concept of universal grammar, you know, and so on. Right. So that, yes, the words may sound different and, and, and so on, but um, there is still, there are some very basic things in language uh, which are also very, very universal. But you're right that uh, mathematics uh, does appear to be uh, quite universal in many ways, um, there, there are two parts to it. One is universal in the concept. The other is universal in the notation and mm-hmm. the formulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the universal in the notation and formulation, that's actually relatively easy to explain. And, you know, I, I like to call this the Microsoft effect, <laughs> um, which is what I mean by that is, you know, once a particular operating system starts to dominate, then everybody else has to adapt to it, you know, in order to communicate and so on. Uh, And that does not mean that to begin with, this was absolutely the best system you could could really come up with. Right. Got it. So so in, in mathematical notation, it's a little bit of that. I mean, you know, people use different characters, different things, different things, but eventually in order to be able to communicate, they all had to uh, you know, develop a, 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 the same type of notation and so on. Hmm. So that part is 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 easier. The the part that has to do with the fact that they still came up with similar concepts and so on. Um, I cannot claim that I, I know exactly the reason for this, but my suspicion is that this has something to do with our perception system 
which actually is universal across, you know, the entire earth at least. Right. Uh, and, and by that I mean, you know, we all, for example, can see very, very clearly edges of things. You know, we know where one object ends and, you know, something else starts, right? Okay. Uh, you know, we can distinguish between foreground and background, you know, and so on. And, and this had to help uh, in the uh, in the fact that we invented the natural numbers, you know, that we count one, two, three, four, five, and so on, because we were able to distinguish these different objects. Okay. Similarly, you know, with our eyes, we can tell very nicely what is a straight line and what isn't. And what is, uh, you know, it's amazing, for example, how small difference we can distinguish between a circle and an ellipse. Um, so, so, these, this yeah. so this surely helped in the fact that natural numbers and geometry were the first, you know, areas of mathematics to have been developed. And this was probably true across all uh, the human race. So they correspond to the to the nature of our senses. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. Th- that's what I think, at least. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, nobody truly knows the answer. Some, something else that I, I find to be a bit in the category of something mysterious is um, how important beauty is to mathemati- mathematicians. You know, it's a oh, word. it's very, very <laughs> important. It really is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, although... You know, like beauty in the arts and so on, it is somewhat more vaguely defined yes. um, than, than uh, you know, you know, even in the arts. I mean, there was actually a period where, where artists and people who talk about aesthetics didn't even want to use the word beautiful. You know, they, they thought, it, you know, they really shouldn't talk about that. You know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder and so on. Um, but um, in, in mathematics, I think that um, there is a little bit more of an understanding of what is meant by beauty. Uh, and generally, what is meant is um, something that I sometimes call simplic- simplicity, and it really means something like reductionism, uh, which means you want to be able to with as little as possible, explain as much as possible. Right. Elegance. And, and this is true for physics as well. Right. Mm-hmm. So, 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 well, elegance is not exactly that. I mean, elegance is you can have a certain proof of a mathematical theorem, you know, one that takes seven pages and involves all kinds of things, and then there is a proof that is in three lines. You say, oh, this is a more elegant proof, you know, and okay. so on. But what I mean by reductionism, it's easier a little bit to explain in, in physics, is that, you know, we try to formulate just a few laws of physics and explain all phenomena mm-hmm. with those few laws, okay? And, 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 and something like this applies to mathematics as well. I mean, there are these concepts of symmetry in particular that many objects in mathematics possess certain symmetries, and we like those symmetries uh, you know, and the way they operate in, in explaining everything. So, but I mean, you know, the word reductionism doesn't sound beautiful. And and I have to say that, as you, you're right, that beauty is always an, an impossible thing to define, although I, I've had scientists say to me that they think um, artists would disagree on the beauty of a painting uh, more than perhaps uh, physicists might disagree on the beauty of a 
of a mathematical equation. There's there's always passion about it. Um, when I, I, I think that's it. true. I think I, I think as a whole it's true. However, I will tell you that you know I I did encounter people who would say that. Uh, you know, the current theory of uh, of elementary particle physics is extraordinarily ugly, <laughs> while other thinks that it is incredibly beautiful. Okay. So, I mean, so these disagreements do do exist. Uh-huh. I, I, I must say I've heard very few people who think that Einstein's general relativity is not beautiful. Right. Uh, but um, But even there, there are some disagreements as to whether you can call it simple or not. Uh, in the following sense, you see, there is no question that Einstein's general relativity in its formulation, it is not simpler than Newton's law of gravity. It is, in fact, much more complicated. Okay. There is no question about this. I mean, the fact is that, you know, we teach Newton's law of gravity in high school and uh, you hardly ever teach general relativity, only to the very, very specialists, yes? So there is no question that in, in its formulation it is, it is much more complicated uh, and, and, and more difficult. On the other hand, you could argue that Einstein's general relativity in the principle behind it is simpler than Newton's theory of gravity because Newton's theory of gravity says that gravity is some sort of a mysterious force that acts across space. Okay. While Einstein's general relativity says, no, that's not what it is. Space itself, you know, has this curvature to right. it. Right. And basically what happens is that simply, you know, the planets and so on, they try to find the shortest path in this warped space. Hmm. So, so the concept is in some sense simpler than the concept that Newton had. It's demystified but the in a way. formulation is more difficult. Mm-hmm. What? It's demystified and it kind of in contrast. In a way, to in mm-hmm. a way, yes, mm-hmm. that's right. Um, and I mean, so I said, as I said, reductionism or simplicity doesn't necessarily sound beautiful. Although the word you like to use, the word symmetry. I mean, symmetry does get closer to. Um, to the aesthetic imagination, I think, of non-scientists. Um, Co- correct. But symmetry is not the same no, as it's reductionism. Not the same. I mean, they are right. in some ways related, but it's not the same. But right. to make reductionism a little bit more, more beautiful to you, allow me the following All right. very simple example. Yes? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, your, your program is, you know, at least partly about faith and so on. Yes? Mm-hmm. And... Um, Certainly when I was a child, I, I, I still remember this very vividly in school, how we were taught that, you know, the transition to monotheism um, was a very a transition towards something that was much more complete and more beautiful. Right. And the idea behind that was that instead of having a God responsible for every single phenomenon, you have a single God that is responsible for everything. Well, that is reductionism. Okay. You know, so right. the word it, may not be so beautiful, but the concept is. It's the beauty of order uh, as opposed to chaos, in a sense. Right. Um, 
I would like to talk about, though, the group theory, the language of symmetry, which is something else you've you've worked on in your book, um, The Equation That Couldn't Be Solved, um, which does tease out a, an aesthetic connection between mathematics and art and nature. Um, would you tell that story a little bit, sort of introduce that subject? Sure. Um, so, so symmetry is something we all recognize. At least, you know, we recognize... Uh, some of us, when when we hear the word symmetry, we only think of bilateral symmetry. You know, the symmetry that our face has, or you know, or symmetry that uh, some building of a, of a church has. You know, and so on. Uh, but uh, in mathematics, there are many types of symmetry. So there is what we call symmetry under translation, which is a symmetry that you might encounter in. Um, I don't know, in wallpaper, for example, where you have a certain motif that repeats okay. itself yeah. as you move in a certain direction. Or you might encounter it in a work of music where, you know, a certain thing repeats itself as, you know, as the piece goes along. Uh, so that's one type of symmetry. Symmetry basically is a quantity that it describes something that does not change. You know, you, you do something and things don't change. For example, in the case of the uh, symmetry, bilateral symmetry, it means you basically reflect it in a mirror and it doesn't change. Or, uh, you know, if you take a phrase like, uh, Madam, I'm Adam, uh, this is a palindrome, which means if I read it from the back to the front, it read, also reads, Madam, I'm Adam. Right. Uh, so that's symmetric under this back to front operation and so on. So there are many symmetries, and we encounter them in shapes, we encounter them in music, we encounter them in a variety of arts, and we encounter them in physics and, and in the sciences. Now, mathematicians came up with a language to describe all these symmetries, and I mean all these symmetries. Everything I just mentioned falls under one type of mathematical language, and that is the language that's called group theory. Right. And it has relevance, as you said, for wallpaper and the human perception of the beauty of a face and uh, a melody as well as great scientific principles. Right. It's really fascinating. Um, and I can't, uh, you know, I can't, I can't help but make a connection here, and maybe this isn't right, but the fact that you um, also in your life are a lover of art. I am. <laughs> I mean that that there's an aesthetic side. You, you seem to, you. to be very very well prepared. <laughs> I am. Well, <laughs> um, so you know, so I don't want to I don't want to force a connection here, but um, you know, let me ask you this way: as you uh, study this, um, especially this implication of symmetry and how that figures into the human response to beauty, did that did that give you insight into your into this passion you have for for art? I, I must say it didn't. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I I honestly don't have um, a very good explanation for my passion for art. <laughs> um, um, I mean, um, I, I, yeah, you know, my family was vaguely connected to art. My, my father was a writer, but I didn't even grow up with him. And my mother was a singer, so, you know, that's, of course, music is one form of art. Uh, but my passion is, is mostly for the visual arts, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, nobody in my immediate family had much to do with the visual arts. Uh, I personally 
like I mentioned at the beginning, I have no talents really uh, in that area. And maybe it simply came out of admiration of what other people can do, uh, of which I cannot do at all. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I did develop relatively early on um, a, a passion for art. And um, that ran kind of parallel to my, my, my uh, passion for science. Uh, they, uh, I, I do try to combine the two, you know, when I write and so on and so forth. Right. And, of course, you, you know, these things sort of come to my mind uh, effortlessly. I mean, you know, I, I talk about science and some of the, the metaphors that I use will come from art, you know, and so on. But I, I, I do not feel that uh, my passion for art was inspired my, by my, life for, my love for science. But I wonder, I mean, so Einstein would sometimes talk about this core sense of wonder that was there, that was an animating for him as a scientist. And, and he would talk about how he had that in common with um, the arts and, and people and religious people. I mean, so do you, do you sense some impulses that are in you that, that animate these two passions? There, there, are no, there, are, there is no question, but, you know, these are subtle and they may be very deep, but they are nevertheless subtle connections, which are the following. You know, you could argue that, okay, scientists looks at nature and tries to find some scientific explanations to what he or she see, uh, sees. And an artist tries to also describe nature or, you know, anything that he or she sees um, in, you know, using uh, some emotions, you know, that that they have about this and so on. And um, in religion, uh, again, I mean, you know, religions at some level stemmed from this sense of awe and wonder Mm -hmm. about this universe that we live in. So at that level... Um, all of these things uh, are inspired by um, by the way we perceive the world around us. So in that sense, uh, surely there are all kinds of connections uh, and so on. Uh, nevertheless, I mean, I think it will be false to say that um, that science and art have in a substantial way influenced each other right. or that science and religion have in a substantial way influenced each other. Right. Um, so, I, I, so I don't think that has happened. But they all stem from this sense of wonder. Right. And see, that's more interesting to me um, than trying to force that relationship. And, but I, I think that particularly happens in American culture, that when we talk about science and religion, you know, not to mention art in the same breath, we try to come up with something more linear. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm curious. I, I, I completely agree with you uh-huh. on this. I mean, I, I, uh, I mean, there is a certain way in which I and, – and I've given this some thought. You know, I have – I'm not myself a, a religious person, but – but I have great, uh, you know, respect for uh, religions of, of everybody. And I have many colleagues who, you know, happen to be 
uh, religious people, and by that I mean, you know, Jews, Christians, Muslims, you know, uh, mm-hmm. from various religions. Um, and um, I, I think that the way that I find that that develops is by something exactly by not forcing these things. Right. Namely, a person who feels a need for God does not want, I think, a God that created the universe however many years ago and then left this universe to its own devices. Mm-hmm. A person, I think, who has a need for God needs a God that is there for him or her every day, every minute, every second. Science has nothing to say about a God like this. Right. You know, this is in a completely parallel, you know, plane than the plane in which science operates. Right. So I think that the places where you generate these unnecessary clashes are when actually people try to force the connection, which is exactly what you said. Mm-hmm. Namely, when they try, when people try to say, for example, I, I'm just giving one very naive example, but, you know, which sometimes happens, which people will take uh, the description from Genesis and will try to argue that the most modern theories in physics agree precisely with what is written in Genesis. Right. Uh, I, I, I really don't want to offend anybody, but I think that this does a disservice both to science and to religion. Yes, and I'm. I mean, I, it's not. A, it's not an. In fact, a serious reading of that text. The way that that biblical text was written, what it was written to do. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I think that the biblical text in, in Genesis is, is a mind-boggling, you know, poetic description of the awe that, you know, was felt for, a, you know, a largely inexplicable universe. Right. <laughs> and to take that and to say that, this exactly means that recombination happened at 400,000 years and I don't know what, you know, and so on and so forth, is really selling both the science and the religion short. Right. And, um, you know, something that's intriguing... I mean, I hope yeah. that you agree with me. I mean, I... I, 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 do, I, I do agree with I, you. I, <laughs> I agree with you, but... Uh, I agree with you, but I, I but think... But feel free to disagree with no, me, no. too. I mean, you know. I w- well, I will, but I also... I would if I... But I um, I think that we have to keep putting... I mean, the the way you say it is different. It comes out of your experience and your perspective, and and that's really helpful to have it said precisely the way you're saying it. And, you know, something that also intrigues you, I mean, you said you're not a religious person, and and, of course, Einstein wasn't a religious person in the sense of believing in a personal God. Something that interests, that interests me in his work and that I, I find coming up again in your writing is, in your writing and the writing of other scientists, is that even scientists, and perhaps because, as you said, however much we discover, there's still much, so much that's largely inexplicable, um, that you end, people end up using the word God. Um, you know, like he would say, 
I needed to know what God was thinking. Uh, right. And by that, did not yeah. mean a personal God, you mm-hmm. know, or when he says, I don't think God plays dice. Yeah, well, and right. Now, and that, was not a, that was about quantum physics. <laughs> right. Yeah, uh-huh. No, but, but you see, when he said that, he did not mean to say that he knows how God spends his time. Yeah. What he meant to say by that is, I, I don't think that the universe works in this way, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and so on. And, and, and that's the same sense of, you know, the question, is God a mathematician? Namely, how come mathematics is as powerful as it is in explaining the universe? Yes. But, it's, it's not, it's not uh, meant to ask what is the profession that God has. Right. Right. Uh, but is there something revealing in the fact that that, that word God um, in these moments when the great questions are being posed, that, that even scientists reach for that word God? Um. Not, I'm saying, yeah. as a statement of belief, mm. but what, what there's... Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm not sure. I, th- I think that, yeah, in a way, yes, it's... That is taken to to mean, you know, the some unifying feature of the universe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And is that is that kind of what you... What's behind that word for you, even when you use it in the title of the book, Is God a Mathematician? Yeah, I like somebody asked me, you know, something like that. And, and and oddly enough, you know, because you actually wrote a book with that title, I said that I mean God exactly as, a, as an Einsteinian God. Uh-huh. Um, uh, that, you know, it's it's in some sense a synonym to the workings of the cosmos or something right. like that. right. And, I mean, he would talk about the mind or the intelligence behind the universe or the superior spirit behind the cosmos, right? I mean, he, but what what I think is interesting and important for people to understand is that for him, and I sense for you, it's just, it's not important to tie that up, um, to call that God in the sense in which religion uses the word God. But you're all, as you said before, science doesn't prove or disprove that. That's not the point, of the exercise. Right, 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 right. And, and maybe I should add one other thing, which is, you know, I mentioned the fact that I have, uh, I have colleagues who are very religious people and, and are extremely good scientists. And um, I, I think that very often the way um, I've seen them make, in some sense, the, the, the separation there is that I think they use their religion more to guide their ethical, moral behavior. Right. And and they use their science to basically explain the universe. Mm-hmm. Right. And it seems to me that when you have, um, say, in the discussion that you describe, uh, the scientific discussion of whether mathematics, mathematical truths are invented or discovered, you know, it seems to me there's something reductionistic in um, in this idea that if we can say that mathematics um, ca- came from the human brain, that that somehow closes out the idea of something behind all that, that that's as reductionistic as to assert that there absolutely is a creator God. Um, because if you, 
um, if there is a mind or intelligence behind the universe, um, if, if, if mathematics is the language in which the universe is written, the language of God, which was how Galileo saw it, um, even if these things come from our brains, wouldn't um, an intelligence behind all of this have endowed us with the capacity to de- decipher and speak in this language? I, I, I think that, you know, from a religious perspective, you may see it in this way. But I think the way I think about this is more in the following sense. I mean, the universe is there. And the fact that we manage to describe the laws that um, explain the universe in the language of mathematics, the only reason that we can do that at all or even attempt to do that is because there are laws to be explained. Um, right. For example, you know, I mentioned I, I mentioned symmetry before. So, for example, there is a very powerful symmetry uh, that uh, the laws of physics have, which is the same as that symmetry of, of the wallpaper, which is that the laws of physics don't appear to change from place to place mm-hmm. in the universe. Mm-hmm. If I do an experiment uh, here on Earth or I look at the hydrogen atom at almost the edge of the universe, uh, they seem to behave the same way. The same laws of physics describe them. If that was not the case, we would have no hope to ever try to explain the universe. Right. So there are some laws of nature, uh, in particular these powerful symmetries, uh, without which, uh, you know, our mathematics would have been useless. Right. I wonder, in this, uh, in um, in the book, Is God a Mathematician? And in a lot of your work, you you do take a long view of time and history. And so, you know, you, you, you trace the history of human fascination with mathematics and scientific work with mathematics, beginning with... Pythagoras and Plato, right, to the present day. And I wonder if there was anything that you saw in tracing that history that you uh, learned about our uh, present reality that informed, that really gave you something to work with, um, this context that you hadn't quite seen before. Well, uh, as I noted, I mean, the, the same type of questions that um, mathematicians or scientists dealt with, uh, you know, even thousands of years ago continue to intrigue us today. Right. And, and in mathematics, even more so than in, in other sciences, I mean, okay, physics, for example, the physics of Aristotle is not the same as our physics today. Mm-hmm. I mean, the questions were the same. Yes, I mean, he also tried to explain, you know, the universe around him. Uh, and so do we. Right. But we don't use the same physics. Uh, in terms of mathematics, uh, we largely use the same. Well, mathematics has evolved, but the mathematics that the ancient Greeks did is still true today, mm. you know, in those areas where, where it, 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 uh, it is applies. Um, so, I, I mean, you know, students today in school 
learned the same geometry that Euclid did at 300 BC. Right. It's the closest uh, thing science has to eternal truths, I guess. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Although uh, somebody once told me, and I think they were right, uh, that uh, philosophy is actually another area where, um, as you may know, you know, Alfred North Whitehead once wrote that all of Western philosophy is just a series of footnotes to Plato. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so in philosophy, we also still use uh, many of the ideas yes. of, of of the the ancients. You keep asking uh, but, the same but in many of the sciences, we don't really. Uh huh. Uh-huh. That's interesting. I mean, one thing that strikes me reading your book that and get, getting an historical view of this is um, uh, as as you tell, and as I've also. Um, told in, in my work in these last years. I mean, it's only really a couple hundred years ago that that religion overtly was taken out of the equation, right? I mean, Galileo, Kepler, Copernicus, um, to some extent Darwin. I mean, they lived in a world that was infused with religion, and their religious imagination was not quite separate from their scientific imagination. Um, but then it's, you know, that, that changed culturally, and it changed in the culture of science. And um, and of course, we have we have ever more increasingly sophisticated systems of logic, and yet, um, in science right now, and especially in in physics, places that work so intensively with mathematics, it seems to me that there's as much mystery that, as there ever was, or more mystery that that there's less determinism, <laughs> right? That there's that there's more that is simply bizarre and unanswerable. And that just seems like kind of a paradox to me to have um, those two phenomena side by side. Um, yes, I mean, but you, you must realize that something somewhat similar happened also in terms of the relationship between philosophy and science. You know that Galileo's position was called a philosopher. Right. Um, so... All the people who dealt with natural sciences were at one point called philosophers. But once uh, physics in particular started to become more mathematical and more quantitative, then philosophy and and science, li- like physics, you know, sort of parted ways in some way. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though they continued to some extent to deal with with the same or similar questions, they still, you know, went on, on somewhat different paths. And and this happened, I think, the the parting of, of religion and science, I think, happened roughly around the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yes, as... as as uh, physics became, in particular, more more predictive, um, right? And uh, then, then you know, this is when people started to talk less in terms of of religion and so on, and and more, you know, in terms of uh, okay, when they want to describe nature, they talk in terms of precise sciences, you know, and so on. Um, so I, I think that that happened. Now you're absolutely right that with uh, uh, you know, with the realization of quantum mechanics and so on, uh, we did discover that our world is not deterministic. Uh, it's not fully deterministic in the sense that we cannot really predict uh, 
the results of an experiment, we can only predict the probabilities of different results, right. uh, which is not the same thing. Yes? I mean, the probabilities are actually fully deterministic. I mean, we can use quantum mechanics to calculate the probabilities for different results, okay. but we cannot calculate the results themselves. Um, so, so that is, yeah, an interesting development of the 20th century. And I, I think neuroscience also, even maybe more explicitly, is, is just throwing out a lot of mysteries and questions that, that can be taken up philosophically or even the, theologically. Yeah, but, but honestly, I, I think that that mostly reflects well, two things. One is that uh, things like, you know, the way the brain works and so on mm-hmm. is purely complicated. I mean, it, it is very complicated. It is, I, I don't think, you know, we will ever or certainly not in a very, very long time be able uh, to describe the way wor- the brain works from first principles, you know, like from, from the laws of physics. Right. Uh, we are certainly a long way from that. So that's one part of it. Uh, and the second part of it is that uh, studies of the life science in general and of the operation of the brain in particular uh, are at relatively early stages. Um, you know, I mean, biology today, I think, is roughly maybe at the state at which physics was uh, before the beginning of the 20th century. I yes, mean, yeah. Many of the major breakthroughs are still to be made. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. I've, I've, heard, I've, I've heard other scientists say that I'm not sure there's such a popular understanding of that because it feels like there's a new discovery every day, but that I've heard well, that... Well, there are lots of discoveries, but, but there is still... Uh, but the systems are very complex. Yeah. And and you will notice that also that most of the discoveries are still more experimental than theoretical. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we we don't have a theory in biology that has the type of precision uh, of uh, quantum electrodynamics. You know, in quantum electrodynamics, yeah. we can calculate uh, the strength of. You know, the electron is like a little magnet. Right. We can calculate the strength of that magnet to parts in a trillion, uh, theoretically. Uh, there is no equivalent such thing in biology. And you, um, you also you point out that, uh, and I guess this is again in this category of, of these different ways we have of understanding what it means to be human, um, of making sense of our lives that are, that are parallel to each other, maybe not overlapping. But, you know, you, you pointed out that we, we're not going to get to um, the place they got in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that the answer to life, the universe, and everything is 42, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> that, yeah. And so, you know, I, I interviewed Jan Levin, um, who's a mm-hmm. physicist. I know who, Jenna, and, yes. you know, and wrote that wonderful novel about Kurt Gödel and Alan Turing and I was really fascinated. I mean, this is where we're – what she talks about is the, the limits of mathematics, which sometimes takes – when science encounters limits, that sometimes takes science further. But you told this fascinating story about Kurt Gödel applying for citizenship um, 
and Einstein yes. accompanying. <laughs> yes, this is a pretty amazing story, it, really. It's a, can I just read a little bit of it? Where um, Sure. And I thought <laughs> it was so fun that you decided to, um, you put the whole copy of this, the, the memory. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to get um, the whole text and... Uh, also, uh, the widow of Oscar Morgenstern, right. um, who uh, accompanied was him. still alive, you know, gave me the permission to put that entire text there. Right. Yes. And so she said, uh, this is just part of it. Um, so he he was going to become a citizen and he and he just he he took it way too seriously. <laughs> he, yes. he approached it way too scientifically. He needed to understand everything about the history of the country and the ins and outs. And then. Here's the point where uh, uh, Morgenstern right now came an interesting development. He rather excitedly told me that in looking at the Constitution, to his distress, he had found some inner contradictions and that he could show how in a perfectly legal manner it would be possible for somebody to, to become a dictator and set up a fascist regime never intended by those who drew up the Constitution. <laughs> right. Um, and then later on, so he tells Einstein about this, who's horrified that the idea had even occurred to Gödel and told him not to discuss these things. But then when they're in yes, the examination... They were afraid that he will not get citizenship. <laughs> and then when they're started. in the examination, the examiner says, uh, oh, oh, you come from Austria. What kind of government do you have there? And he says it was a republic, but the constitution was such that it finally was changed into a dictatorship. The examiner says, oh, this is very bad. This could not happen in this country. And Gödel says, oh, yes, I can prove it. Yes. <laughs> it's a true story. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so that's just... Yes, uh, and luckily the, that examiner was, uh, <laughs> was clever enough not to get into this. And he said, okay, let's not talk about this now. And, uh, and you know, and, and he gave him the citizenship. But, uh, yes. Yeah. I... I think that stories like that are 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 interesting because they do also just give us this reminder that life is about more than science um, or than what science can describe, even though Kurt Gödel is a perfect ex- example of someone who brought brilliance into the world and for whom maybe mathematics was the only real true thing. Yeah, he he was definitely, you know, one of those believers. He was a a real Platonist and, you know, thought that mathematics was, Mm -hmm. you know, those truths were there and eternal and we just discovered them. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is very strange for somebody who who showed, you know, some of the most, uh, you know, uh, interesting limitations of mathematics. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, how do you think about... Um, my sense is that so, so for example there's the part of you that loves art and um, and that there, there's the part of you that does science and my sense is that you don't you don't need your science to reflect on that one way or, or the other um, you don't need your you, you don't need your science to answer to tie up all the questions of life that I don't need my science yeah well, the questions of life are very, very complex, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to answer much simpler questions as, you know, some very distinct phenomena that we observe in the universe and which we don't understand, you know, like this phenomenon of dark energy uh, that is pushing the universe to expand faster and faster. Um, so we don't, at the moment, we hardly have a clue what that is. Uh, and I've 
given quite a bit of thought to what this might be, and uh, I must say not with much success so far. <laughs> um, but um, so, so I do try to use my science to answer very uh, specific questions. I mean, the thing is that in science, unless you have a, a well-defined problem, and, and in mathematics too, then it is virtually impossible to actually answer it. Right. Um, so, um, so I try to, uh, you know, when I look at some phenomenon that is about the universe, I try to ask myself, okay, what is the biggest question we don't understand about this? Uh, and then I try to see if I can do anything to try to answer that question. Now, when it comes to things such as, as, as life and things like that, these are inherently very complex uh, situations uh, where, you know, I wouldn't even dare um, try to, I, I mean, I, very often I don't even know what question to pose, let alone <laughs> to try to find an answer. That's a good way to make that distinction. That's true of life. We, if we, we're often not even asking the right question. And therefore, we couldn't apply logic to the, to the solution. No, I mean, you know, there are, of course, people, you know, that, that uh, you know, do very, very important work in this respect. But mm-hmm. they try to take, I mean, the people who do the best work are those who try to take baby steps instead of, you know, trying to. Uh, so, you know, like, uh, I don't know, Jack Shostak, who just got the Nobel Prize this year. Um, uh, you know, tries to do work on the origin of life, okay? So, mm-hmm. so, so very simple experiments. I mean, you know, they don't try to, uh, you know, take a test tube and see whether a baboon walk, walks out of that. Right. Um, they, they try to do very, very simple experiments on how, for example, a membrane can form, you know, or something mm. like that and so on. And I think that that's the way to, to make real progress in these areas. I just want to ask you a couple more questions. Um, Please. I've, I've read that, uh, that something that's important to you is that, that science and mathematics should be communicated better and in the same way that literature and poetry are as part of human culture. And I think that's... That is absolutely right. true, yes. So, so here's how... And I, I would hope that the conversation we've just had has you know, been an exercise in that. I, I wonder... Um, you're at the Hubble Telescope. We've hardly even spoken about that. But um, so how, if I ask you how you would like people to imagine the work you're doing there as part of culture, you know? Um, so actually yeah. the work I do with the Hubble, that, that's the easiest part okay. to actually <laughs> deal with it. Yeah. Okay. Because, because, you know, if Hubble has done one thing, other than all the scientific discoveries, uh, what Hubble has done is it, it has literally taken the you know, the excitement of discovery and and brought it into the homes of people. Mm. I mean, you know, you see now Hubble images everywhere. Uh, I, I just saw the other day some, uh, you know, one of these late night shows where where a person, you know, just started showing Hubble images one <laughs> after another, you know, and so on. So, uh, and, you know, the rock group Pearl Jam chose a Hubble image for the cover of one of their albums. All right. um, so, so there is, uh, Hubble images are so astounding and they are so visually beautiful um, that uh, people really can appreciate this because in that case, they do something that is in some sense even more than a work of art because on one hand, 
They are extraordinarily beautiful. And at the same time, people realize that this is something real that exists out there. Mm. You know, it doesn't come out for just from somebody's imagination. So they realize that there is all this incredible beauty in the universe that surrounds us. So, so Hubble has really been fantastic in, in communicating science to the public and hopefully uh, inspiring young people in particular uh, to get uh, more into the sciences. I, I should mention, by the way, that uh, at the end of this weekend, April 24, we're celebrating 20 years to the launch of the Hubble oh, Space Telescope. Okay. So, so you know, it was we, we have an anniversary, too. In 1990? Yes. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, we... We we don't have a very good historical perspective in general in in the United States and and when you tell all this story of science across the ages I mean again and again scientific discovery has reframed uh, our cultural imagination about who we are and what the cosmos is and our place in it so I want to ask you you know what are you working on now um, that that comes closest to doing that for you and where where you you know what are you working on now that you think might ultimately reframe not just your imagination but all of our imagination about some of these big questions well one thing i mentioned is that i'm involved in these studies of this dark energy i mm-hmm. mean we uh, we knew that our universe was expanding we knew that since uh, the 1920s uh, but we thought that this expansion should slow down Instead, in 98, we discovered that the expansion is speeding up. Uh, it is propelled by something. Uh, for lack of a better name, we call this something dark energy. And we now know that this dark energy is more than 70% of the energy of the universe, mm. but we still don't know what it is. So that's one thing we're trying to basically find more of the properties of this dark energy. On the other hand, I tried to work on extrasolar planets, by that, I mean planets around other stars. Okay. Um, you know, until 1995, we did not know of a single planet outside the solar system that revolves around a sun-like star. Mm. And we now know of about 450 mm. such planets that revolve around other stars. Because we've been able so, to see them? Well, um, we mostly we discover them just by the, their small gravitational pull on okay. their parent star. But in a couple of cases, and Hubble actually played a very important role of this, we were able to actually image, you know, a, a planet like this. Mm. Um, with any luck, uh, you know, we will eventually uh, be able to even see them directly. And we have started to determine the composition of the atmospheres of some of these planets, you know, and so on. And, of course, the ultimate goal would be eventually to find if there is life elsewhere, right. intelligent life in particular. Right. Uh, so, so part of my work is about, about these. So I, in some sense, I work about some of the smallest things, namely planets around other stars, and uh, about some of the biggest things, I mean, things that push the whole universe as a whole. Hmm. Well, I I think um, is, there, is there anything I haven't asked you, or anything you'd like to add, or or talk about a little bit more? Um, let me see. A, a couple of minutes ago, there was I think you started something, and then I wasn't sure where. 
somehow we turned and went into something else, but I'm trying to think okay. what that was. Right. Um, what, what did you ask about what you talked with oh, Jana? You talked about Kurt Gödel and things like that. Well, about, then, uh, maybe uh, I said that one of the things she talked about is how when science bumps up against limits, like Kurt Gödel showed a limitation to mathematics, that that actually um, becomes a moment of progress. Right. I mean, speed of light, knowing that, that there's a speed of light is, is a moment of progress. It makes all kinds of other discoveries possible, even though it is a moment of understanding limitation. Was that it? Um, may, maybe it was. I'm not, I'm not sure if it was that. So maybe I, I could say a, a little bit something about, um, you know, that we continuously push the boundaries mm-hmm. and so on. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, how how does science at the end, you know, progress and yeah. so on? Maybe yeah. you can ask something about yeah. that. Yeah, well, just talk. Just That's good. Okay. Yeah, so one of the things that we have done in, in, in science in general and and in physics in particular, is, you know, we continuously push both farther and farther back in time and, uh, you know, into areas that we didn't know before. So, uh, you know, for example, you know, until, uh, I don't know, Copernicus, we thought that uh, the Earth is the center of the universe. Right. Uh, we then discovered that the Earth is not even at the center of the solar system. <laughs> we then discovered that the solar system is not at the center of of our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. Uh, we are about two-thirds of the way out. Uh, then, you know, astronomer Edwin Hubble discovered that... Uh, there are billions of galaxies like like ours. Yeah. And in fact, with the Hubble Space Telescope, we have shown that there are about 200 billion galaxies like ours just in the observable right. universe right. and so on. And, of course, we also, in terms of time, you know, we uh, we now can talk about things that happened a fraction of a second after the you know, all space and time of the universe came into being. Mm. We're talking about this event we call inflation, which if we're lucky, then maybe we will even be able to see direct evidence for that, you know, event to have happened and so on. Now, the interesting thing is that even though we keep pushing these boundaries and so on, we somehow always find new mysteries. <laughs> in, you know, un- until 1998, we didn't know that this dark energy exists. Right. And now, you know, we know it's the dominant form of energy of our universe. So somehow, you know, you whenever you think that you've reached some sort of, a, you know, that you cannot go beyond, okay, this is all that there is to know and so on, somehow we discover that there is yet something even more mysterious right. uh, that, 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 that hides behind uh, all of that. Uh, and uh, this is very interesting because it also plays a very interesting role in terms of the human mind because, you see, our physical existence uh, has become uh, more and more minuscule in all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because, you know, we are such small things in this large universe, you know, and so on and so forth. The stuff we're made of is only 4% of the energy of the universe and so on. But our minds, you know, uh, 
somehow managed to get around all of this. You know, all of these things are discoveries that we made. Okay. So in that sense, uh, we are very central to all of this. I mean, if we didn't make these discoveries, we wouldn't be talking about them. We are very central, even as everything we are discovering makes us smaller and smaller in the grand exactly. scheme of physically things. smaller uh-huh. physically smaller and smaller but our minds become more and more important mm-hmm. you know in in all of these things because our minds expand at the same rate well our knowledge if you like expands at the same rate that everything i talked about in the universe because every such thing was a discovery that we made <laughs> and the same will be happening you know with with life, you know, that we talked about a little bit and so on. I mean, we will discover more and more things about life, about Mm -hmm. how the brain works, you know, about how life originated, all all these things. Um, So so this is really very, very fascinating, you know, of how uh, we are uh, doing all of this. And, you know, just imagine what would happen if or when uh, we discover intelligent life elsewhere. <laughs> right. You know, this will be a, a, a revolution that, you know, the humankind has never experienced, actually. And, you know, one of the places this takes me is um, back to it's just, and I don't know what's going to, what the future will be of this science, religion, discussion, or interplay, or whatever that is. Um, but, but, Part of where it came to in the 20th century was this idea that science was pushing religion farther and farther out of the picture because science ultimately was going to answer all the questions, right? But as you're saying, what's happened in the 21st century as we've built on these discoveries of the 20th century is that, in fact, there's just this exponential increase in questions and even in, in what you call mystery, um, which doesn't in and of itself say anything about religion, but it, it is a it's it's not what I think scientists thought was going to be happening a hundred years ago. No, I or mean, religious people. Know, even. Lord Kelvin, you know, is uh, thought is, is has been claimed to have said that you know that uh, everything has been actually solved already, and there are just two small problems that <laughs> remain to be solved. And as it turned out, those two problems led to quantum mechanics and general relativity, <laughs> the two greatest. Right. Uh, scientific revolutions of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, surely this is how things are are happening. And uh, we have had a number of occasions of, you know, uh, there are those things where, uh, you know, the, the, another famous physicist once said, who ordered this? Uh, you know, I mean, so who ordered dark energy? You know, I mean, <laughs> as if we didn't have enough, you know, to explain as it was already. And then suddenly this thing uh, appears and it's now the the most perhaps intriguing question in all of physics. Right. So where does that leave you? Uh... Well, you know, there are jobs for scientists <laughs> <laughs> still in the future. And I hope that, uh, you know, young people will, will find because, you know, some people sometimes ask me if I'm fascinated by science fiction. And I, I like to say that Actually, real science is way more fascinating than any science fiction I've ever read (laughs) Uh, because, you know, there is really so much, uh, you know, uh, there to to do and there is so much room for imagination and creativity uh, that uh, I I certainly hope that, you know, people will – 
will go more into that and 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 uh, you know do more of mathematics, science, engineering, you know, and so on. And, and I don't mean by that that everybody needs to become a mathematician. Absolutely mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. I mean, God forbid if everybody was a, a, a mathematician. Even um, if God is a mathematician. <laughs> yeah. But, 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 but what I mean by that is that, you know, understanding indeed that Mathematics and and uh, and physics and so on is is a part of human culture mm-hmm. and a very important part uh, of of human culture, uh, which has also led us to you know where we are to, to a large extent um, right now uh, is something that is extraordinarily important for society in general and even for people who at the end don't become professional scientists. I mean, thinking in those terms, you know, and learning. Uh, you know all those logical systems and 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 so on and and the tools that are provided by by things like mathematics and so on are very important for every aspect of our our everyday life. Right. Let me just run something by you as we and I, I don't I'm not sure I've ever seen you use the word spirituality, but I, I wonder what you think of this. A, a geneticist once said to me that he thought if you could talk of something, if you could speak of the spirituality of a scientist, he thought it would be like the spirituality of a mystic, which is to say that you are bound to discern the shape of truth as best you can at any given moment in time, and also completely animated by the idea that of of everything you don't yet know. And uh, that there's so much yet to discover. I, I think that I, I would probably agree with almost every word you said, except that probably I would not use the word spirituality to describe that. Yeah. Uh, but if spirituality means this, this really sense of wonder, uh, then then definitely I agree with that. Okay. All right. Well, this has been really great. Um, I've enjoyed it. I hope you have. Uh, Thank Anna, you. I. I, I think your work is so important, and it's, it's delightful that you that you can write about it, right? I mean, these, your books are accessible in a way that a lot of books aren't. Um, so Thank we you. will be uh, we'll let you know what's happening with this, and I I think you've been emailing with with uh, one of my colleagues, and if we have any right. questions, Shuba might send you a question. Um, do you have Do you have any sense when this might air? Um, you know, it's. We have. I mean, ballpark. I mean, I, yeah. I don't mean very precisely. Yeah, I've been traveling quite a lot lately, and we're just getting back. Sorry, we're thinking it will be in June. In June. We're just okay. a little bit behind in producing, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I just wanted to have an idea. You know, whether it's June or December. No, or, no, or, I, you know. it will be in the next few months, and we'll we'll give you good advance notice on that too. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. You have been extraordinarily well prepared. And uh, (laughs) yes, this was very good. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.